we're doing this semester in RUF, what we've been doing kind of the, over the arc of the whole semester, is we've been looking through the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, the theme of the first eight chapters of Mark's Gospel is to get at the idea, to get at the question, who is Jesus? And the climax of those first eight chapters is found right here in chapter 8, where that great question is asked directly. And so once that question is asked and once that answer is provided, the second half of Mark's gospel goes in a different direction. Now it's not just talking about who Jesus is. The the second eight chapters of Mark's gospel is unpacking what it is he came to do. So tonight we're just going to zero in on this kind of climactic hinge text. Great passage, short passage. Let me read it, then we'll jump in. This is Mark 8, beginning in verse 27. It reads this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Jesus answered, you're the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of God. Of men. This is God's word. Let me pray before we consider it together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that in these next few moments, you would indeed be our teacher. Spirit, would you come? Would you open up our eyes? Would you illuminate this passage? Would you, would you unclog our ears, soften our hearts, and enable us by your grace to see your beauty and your glory, and your truth, your majesty once again? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the dangers of being involved in RUF or being involved in the church or having grown up and been around kind of Christian circles is that things that are shocking become very familiar. Things that are, uh, that should rattle you out of your cage just become, you kind of become numb to and kind of, you get glazed over to and just kind of washes over you and it doesn't really penetrate your heart like the way that it should. For example, uh, recently I was singing to our little girl Zoe Kate the words of the nursery rhyme, Rockabye Baby. Have you ever paid attention to the lyrics of Rockabye Baby. If you haven't, here it is. Rockabye Baby in the treetop. So you've got a baby up in a tree. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the boughs break, boughs are branches. When the branches break, the cradle will fall. And down will come baby, cradle and all. And, and it's, in, it's insane to think that we're, we're, we're singing this song to a child to calm them to sleep. It's like, hey, imagine, baby, you're in a tree and there's a windstorm and you fall and plummet. And good luck resting now. But the point is... Something that becomes so familiar, you sing that song, you've heard it as a kid, you sing it to kids, but if you, don't, if you do not stop and pay attention, 
you completely miss how shocking it is. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's looking at us and saying, look, if you do not stop and pay attention to who I am and what I have done, you will miss it. If you are not shocked out of your apathy and your familiarity with me, you've missed the point. And so what we're going to do is we're going to actually stop and pay attention to who Jesus is tonight because it really only sends us in one of two extremes. It either sends us to worship him as the king of the universe or it sends us into the other direction of hating his guts. There is no comfortable in-between where you can just kind of click like on Jesus. It's either worship him or hate him. So, in order to stop and pay attention to who he is and what he's done, we're going to look at three things. You have to, if you're going to stop and actually get past the familiarity of who Jesus is or a little Christian subculture, you have to answer the identity, understand the necessity, and then embrace the reality. Those are the three things. You have to answer the identity question. You, you have to understand the necessity, and you have to embrace the reality. We'll unpack that as we go. Okay, let's, let's, let's look at what I mean by answer the identity. If you look at uh, verse 27, Jesus initially, he starts off and he says, okay, who do people say I am? And according to Peter in verse 28, it seems that people were giving lots of different answers to that. Some people were saying this, some people were saying this, some people were saying this. And it's interesting, people were trying to figure Jesus out. They had all these different explanations to try and peg him into a certain category. Who is this guy? How can we label him? How can we kind of box him in? And then Jesus takes a step deeper. In verse 29, he looks at them and he says, okay, 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 that's great what they say, but who do you say that I am? And what Jesus is doing here is he's taking this question out of sort of the safe academic world and he's actually applying it and making it very personal. Because he's not, ask, he's not just asking them this question, he's asking you. And he's asking me. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you, I mean you've got to put a personal pronoun in that sentence. Here is what I actually think of him. Not here's what I think RUF thinks about him. Here's what my parents think about him. Here's what my church thinks about him. You have to personalize this. You have to answer the identity question. Who do you think that he is? This is the question that is on your soul tonight. Now, I think just like in Jesus' day, there were a lot of different options to pick from. And I think in our day, there are lots of different options to pick from as well to explain who Jesus is. And what I want to do is I want to say that there's five. There are five basic options that you can pick. This is a multiple choice test for you. What it is that Jesus, who Jesus actually is. He's uh, either a a legend. He's either uh, a good teacher, a prophet. Thirdly, he is a liar. Fourthly, he could be a lunatic. Or fifth, he could be the Lord of the universe. Those are the five. And what I want to do is just kind of walk through each each of these options for this point. He's either a legend, a good teacher, a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And I'm getting a lot of this, by the way, from a pastor named Tim Keller. So footnote to him. I didn't come up with a lot of this. First, the legend. Let's look at the legend option. The idea of this option is basically this. Uh, The idea goes, well, you know, how do we know that any of this stuff in the Bible actually happened? How how do we know that, um, uh, you know, Jesus actually in real life claimed to be God? Because maybe the early church just kind of wrote some, you know, made some stuff up. And you kind of know how the game telephone works. It just kind of built and built and built. And after a few centuries, you've got these crazy legendary things. Jesus is healing people. He's walking on water. He's raising people from the dead. That seems a little 
crazy. He's just a legend that we can't really know who he actually was historically. Now, that's the idea. There, and there's a lot of things that we could say to that, but I just want to give one response to that. That can't be what Jesus is. He can't be a legend for this reason. This is just one of many that we could say here. The reason is, is that it's too... The, the documents that were written about him were written too early to when he was walking around. In, in other words, the only way to get crazy fabricated stuff like that off the ground and people actually believing it is only if all the original eyewitnesses have died on, have, have died. So for example, uh, let's just say in 30 years I write a book about when App State lost to the Citadel in 2012. I was at that game in 2012. It was a horrible loss for our Mountaineers. But let's just say, in 30 years, I wrote this book and said, you know, Citadel, they crushed App State. And then after the game was over, everyone kind of went crazy. There were these riots downtown. People were busting in windows. People were shooting up the place. People were getting killed all over the place. It was insane. Now, you're still going to be alive in 30 years. And let's just say, you know, I'm, I'm making all these publications. I'm getting interviewed about the great riot of 2012 in Boone. And, and you can stand up and say, no, I was there. None of that happened. Sure, we lost. Sad. But none of the riots and death and all that crazy stuff happened. See, what you could do, because you're still alive, you could contradict me. The only way that the gospel writers could get this stuff off the ground and have people actually believe it is if all the original eyewitnesses were dead so that nobody could stand up and contradict it. The problem, though, is that the Gospel of Mark, the earliest written of the Gospel accounts, was written 10 to 15 years after the actual events. And all of the original eyewitnesses, or at least most of the original eyewitnesses, would have still been alive. And so Mark's going around saying, Jesus walked on water, Jesus healed this person, Jesus did this. All the original eyewitnesses are going to say, no, he didn't, I was there. But there was no contradiction. And it got off the ground and everyone believed and it took the world by storm. He can't be a legend. He can't just be a legend that the church made up. It's the first option. The second option, some people say he was just a good teacher. You know, some people say, well, I just like to think of Jesus as a good, as a good teacher, a good, you know, maybe a prophet, someone who had a kind of keen spiritual insight. He taught these great things, you know, care for the poor, turn the other cheek, forgive your enemies, stuff like that. He could not have been merely a good teacher. For the simple fact that he taught that he was God. If you're teaching something that isn't true, that disqualifies you from being a good teacher, wouldn't you say? For example, if you're going to your math class and the teacher's teaching you 2 plus 2 equals 5, don't know why they would be teaching you simple arithmetic in college, but it's an early math class, but they're writing 2 plus 2 equals 5, you would not walk out of that class thinking, man, a teacher is amazing. That is a great teacher. No, the, the fact, if you're teaching something that's false, it disqualifies you from being a good teacher. If Jesus is teaching, he is God and he's not God, that disqualifies him. He can't be a good teacher. He can't just be a good prophet. Can't be a legend, can't be a prophet. Third, some people say he's a liar. He intentionally went around and deceived people. He tricked them, got them to believe this stuff then he died, and everybody carried on these lies. Here's what G.K. Chesterton says in response to that. And G.K. Chesterton is the, uh, the Roman Catholic version of C.S. Lewis before there was C.S. Lewis. And here's what he writes. He says this. If I found a key on the road, and I discovered that it fit, and it opened a particular lock at my house, 
try to assume, most likely, that the key was made by the lock maker. And if I find a set of teachings set out in pre-modern oriental society that has proven itself with such universal validity, that has fascinated and satisfied millions of people in every century, including the best minds in history and the simplest hearts, that it has made itself at home in virtually every culture, it's inspired masterpieces of beauty in every field of art, it continues to grow rapidly and spread itself and assert itself in lands where a century ago the name of Jesus Christ Christ was not even heard, if such teaching so obviously fits the locks of so many human souls in so many times and in so many places, are they likely to be the work of a deceiver, a liar? No. It is more likely that they were designed by the heart maker. The quality of his teaching is such that he can't be a liar. He can't be a deceiver. He can't be a legend. He can't be just a good teacher. He can't be a liar. Fourth option. He's crazy. He's a lunatic. That's how you explain, that's how you get out from under these claims. I'm God. Worship me. You know, I was, you know, before Abraham was, I am. That's how you get out from under the stuff. He's just, he's crazy. He's nuts. Here's what Bono says. In response to that, Bono in 2005 was being interviewed and the interviewer looked at him and said, you know, I guess somewhere in the interview they were talking about Jesus, son of God or something. And, and you know, Bono's very uh, ex- uh, explicitly Christian with his views. And the interviewer looked at him and says, you know, okay, Jesus, sure, he's a great guy, interesting, but God, I mean, come on. That's, that seems a little far-fetched, is it not? Here's Bono's response. Imagine this with an Irish accent. He says, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to Christ always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say, but Christ won't allow you to say that. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And so what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. And then here's the sentence I want to highlight. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, to me, that's far-fetched. You see what he's saying? He's saying, sure, if you believe Jesus is God, there's some questions to that. That's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow. I know. But if you're going to say that the alternative is Jesus is crazy and that the entire course of civilization for 2,000 years has been changed because of someone who is crazy, that's a bigger pill to swallow. That has more problems with it than this one. So where does that leave us? Of the five options, he can't be a legend. He can't just be a good teacher. He can't be a liar. He can't be a lunatic. What we are left with is that he is the Lord of the universe. That he is God incarnate. He is who he said he was. None of the other options make sense. Here's, another, here's what another author says uh, in response to this. They say, no one has yet to discover the word that Jesus ought to have said or the deed that he ought to have done. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he's always surprising you and taking your breath away because he's better than you imagine. Why? They are the surprises of perfection. 
He combined virtues never seen together before. Tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, holiness and unbending conviction for the slightest lack of approachability, and and power uh, without insensitivity, passion without prejudice, the harshest judgment on the self-satisfied yet the most winsome kindness to the broken and the marginal. Never inconsistent, never a false step, never a jarring note. This is why when Peter looks at him in verse 29, he looks at Jesus and says, you are the Christ. I mean, can you even see in in describing him, don't you get a little taste of of what the disciples saw? When, When they were looking at the substance of a human being, they were looking through that to basically see the person of God himself. And that's why they were tempted to worship him. That's why they did worship him. That's why they answered, you are the Christ. So the question for you is, who do you say he is? Which of those options makes the most sense to you? You have to answer the identity question. But secondly, you've got to take a further step. You, can't just, you don't just have to answer the identity. You also have to understand the necessity. And here's what I mean by that. If you look at verse 31, he says the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, he says the Son of Man must suffer and die. He doesn't say I might suffer and die. He doesn't even predict it and say I will suffer and die. He says I must. It is a necessity. I have to go through this. Why? Well, we've got to understand the necessity. We've got to understand the must-ness of that statement. Okay? Well, let's take a second to figure it out. Most people, I would assume, Christians, non-Christians, if if someone believes in God, my guess is they are going to say that God is good. Sure, God is good. Well, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says, okay, okay, okay. If you're going to say that God is good, let's just not assume what you mean by that, because you know what assuming does. He didn't say that, but... I'm translating. He says, if you're going to say that God is good, that doesn't mean that God is soft or spineless or like an indulgent parent. If God is absolute goodness, that means that God must be, by definition, opposed to that which is evil, to that which is good, that which is bad. That is what makes him good. And so we get that. Yeah, of course, God is against evil. God's against injustice. But as soon as we start seeing that, okay, well, we've got greed, we've got lust, we've got self-entitlement, self-righteousness, pride in our heart, that must mean he's opposed to us as well. And we don't want that. We want him to make exceptions when it comes to us. But if God makes an exception for us, he's no longer good. He can't be good if he, just, if he makes any excuse or any exception for evil, for sin, for wickedness, for whatever. That contradicts his very goodness. He can't make any allowance, any excuse for it. Think about it this way. Um, Let's just say you're sitting at a red light. Parked your car at a red light, chilling, waiting for the light to turn. Out of nowhere, car comes in, sideswipes you, smashes your car. And you get out of your car, and you're seeing your car is totally smashed, crumpled up. And the other person gets out of their car, and you're like, um... Like, are you okay? What's, like, what, what's going on? What happened? And they said, well, you shouldn't have been parked there. And you're like, um, I was just parked here at the red light like I'm able and, you know, this is my right to do this. And they say, well, too bad. I'm not paying for that. 
and you say, okay, well, yes, you are paying for that. I'll see you in court. Cop comes up, you know, you get court date. Two weeks later, you see them in court. You like my scenario I've created so far. So you're in court. This person is clearly in the wrong. You're clearly in the right. And let's just say the judge looks at this person. The judge says, well, you know, um, they seem sorry for this. They, they, they seem like they've, they, and they didn't mean it. So I'm just going to let them off the hook. And you're left like, uh, but my car's destroyed. They need to pay for it. Like, sorry, they're, they're taken care of now. You would be outraged because that means that that judge is not a good judge. He disqualifies from being called good. He's not upholding justice. Justice is making things right, holding people accountable. If he is not good, I mean, if he is good, then that person should be held accountable for it. This means if God is good, everything has to, everyone has to be accountable for their sin, their unrighteousness, their wickedness. Otherwise, God can't be considered good. So C.S. Lewis writes in his book, this chapter, by the way, is called, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. It should make you uneasy to think about the goodness of God. Because he says this, Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun, but they need to think again. Well, I know some of you say, um, I thought God just loved everybody, though. Doesn't he just accept people? Doesn't he just love everybody? Isn't that part of kind of... The deal here, he just loves everybody, accepts everybody no matter what. If that's what you think, then you have to be committed to this position. This means that you are logically committed to saying, when God looks at rapists and pedophiles and terrorists and people who perpetuate genocide, that he just says, like the judge on the stand, oh, it's okay. I'll let you slide by. Which disqualifies him from being good. If you're going to say he just accepts and loves everybody no matter what, you have to say he's not good. If we would not let a human judge get away with that, how much more can we not let God get away with that? If God is good, he by necessity has to be opposed to evil. And we're all evil, the Bible says. But God is not just good. He's also loving. He is loving. But his love looks at you like this and he says, okay, I've got to uphold my justice. I've got to uphold my goodness. And the way that I'm going to uphold it, because I want you. I can't have you if I, I can't disqualify my own justice, my own goodness, and I would lose you. The way that I get you, the way that I get you out from under my justice is that I go under it myself. And what that means is that Jesus, the Son of God, comes to earth in the person of Jesus and goes to the cross and bears the weight and is crushed by God's goodness, by God's justice, so that you, when you are connected to him by faith, you're freed. You're out from under it, and it's totally free. It's totally of grace to you, unbelievably costly to him. This is why it was necessary for Jesus to die. God is so good that he had to die for you. But God is so loving that he was glad to die for you. Look, I'm going to give you a sentence that I hijacked from a John Piper book. And if you can wrap your mind around this sentence, this will unlock the gospel for you. It's well worth your time to marinate and meditate on this sentence. Here it is. Piper writes this. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. 
I'll read it again because I know it was chunky. Here it is. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice or the goodness of God. That is why it was necessary for Jesus to die. That is how, that's why we have to understand the necessity. He had to die for sin. The reality is someone has to pay for your sin. Someone has to. And either you are going to in eternity in hell or Jesus is on the hell of the cross, which means that he gets crushed, completely costly to him, unbelievably free to you. You have to understand the identity. You have to answer the identity question, who is he? You have to understand the necessity, why he had to die, and lastly and briefly, you have to embrace the reality. You have to embrace the reality. Look at uh, verse 32 and 33. This is what's going on here. Jesus is basically saying you have to get and embrace the real me, not some counterfeit made-up version of whatever you want me to be. So Peter just said, you're the Christ. But as soon as Jesus starts to unpack what that means, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, Peter doesn't like that. Because Peter expected Jesus to be this like military warrior who is just going to come in and wipe out and destroy all of his enemies. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Which, by the way, I think is a little ironic. Because Jesus is, if Peter is thinking... This guy is a mercenary who will kill anybody who stands in his way. You don't rebuke people like that and say, what are you thinking, you idiot? That's a bad move to make. So what Jesus does is he basically turns on Peter and he says, what you want is satanic. Because you've got some idea in your mind of what I'm supposed to be. And I'm not going to let you believe that. You have to embrace the reality of who I really am. Not some counterfeit, made-up version of whatever you want me to be. You have to get the real me. He won't let you off the hook of just worshiping and serving some God that you've made in your own image. Now, I know I've read a lot of quotes to you tonight. And I don't typically like to do that. But I've got one more. It's a little long, but I think it's well worth it. This is uh, from a pastor that I heard named Fred, uh, Fred Harrell. I'm not sure where he got this quote from. <clears throat> but this quote is basically in a jagged edge, but with some humor on the back end, uh, way of pointing at all of us and saying, you believe in some sort of Jesus. And if it's not the real Jesus, it's a counterfeit made up one. Let me just read you this. He says this. There's the Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and advocates family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who's all against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's gentle Jesus, which I think this is my favorite. There's gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild, with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot, wearing a sash, while looking very German. (laughs) There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, who imagines a world without religion and helps us remember that all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach to the stars and buy a boat. There's 
spirituality Jesus, who hates religion and churches and pastors, priests and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. There's guru Jesus, a wise and inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. And then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one that they were waiting for, the son of David, Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoner, and to proclaim the good news to the poor, the Lamb of God who who came to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This is the Christ that is not just a reflection of the current mood or a projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God, the Son, Savior of the world, substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. This is the Jesus that came and turned the world upside down. This is the Jesus that lived and suffered and died in the place of his people. But just knowing that is not enough. Not just, just knowing the reality is not enough. You have to embrace it. And I'll end with this. Let's just say that you're dying of thirst. Parched, dehydrated, dying of thirst. And if I put a tall glass of cold water in front of you... Just cognitively knowing that that water will quench your thirst is not enough to actually quench your thirst. The knowledge of water doesn't quench your thirst. You actually have to reach out, grab it, and take it in. The knowledge of Jesus is not enough. You actually have to reach out and embrace him by faith. Now here's what I mean by that, because we use that language a lot, and so I just want to end with this. What it means to reach out and to embrace him by faith is is somewhat simplistic in in the sense of the way that I'm going to present it to you. But I want to present it to you in kind of an ABC format. A, the way to embrace Jesus by faith is A, you have to acknowledge that you need a savior. Admit that you can't do this by yourself. B, is that you believe the gospel. The gospel is this, is that God is so good that he had to die for you. And yet God is so loving, he was glad to die for you. C, you commit your life to living for him. You say, from here on out, my life is yours. A, B, C, admit that you need a savior, believe that the gospel is true, and then commit from here on out. Here's the question. How will you respond? Who do you say that he is? Consider that an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, would you, by your grace, help us not to believe in some counterfeit version of you that we may have um, constructed in our heads, some phony version of you that we have maybe picked up through school or our upbringing or 
um, misguided teaching in our church. We pray that you would expose us to the real Jesus, the Son of God, the the creator and the redeemer of all things. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the faith and the grace and the courage to reach out and to embrace who he really is and have our world turned upside down for the good, just like the world itself. Would you do that in a deeper way in my heart, in a deeper way in these folks' hearts as they... Uh, move towards uh, exams and the Christmas season and the holiday season. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.